This is What Happens If with Daniel and Jan on Joy. This is What Happens If on Joy 94.9. My name's Daniel Roberts. I'm Jan DiPietro. Um, on What Happens If every week on Tuesdays. This is today. This is it. We're doing it. <laughs> we... <laughs> No we, we try to ask a different question each week and um, tonight we are asking what happens if the world ends. Mm. Now, uh, we have a very special guest on the phone. They are from the CSIRO. They are the lead researcher into ecosystems and... Uh, risk. Risk management. Risk assessment, excuse me. <laughs> From the CSIRO, CSIRO, it's Dr. Beth Fulton. Hi, Dr. Beth. Thank you for joining us. Good day. Thanks for having me. Shall we call you Dr. Beth? If you want, or Beth's just fine. <laughs> I'm going to go Dr. Beth. I like Dr. Beth. Yeah. You're our first doctor, Dr. <laughs> Beth. <laughs> Better than Mama Yoda. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the oceans are warming quite rapidly. Most of the heat that's happened with climate change has actually been sucked into the ocean. And so that means that much like you have cyclones and storms and heat waves on land, you can have them in the ocean as well. And they're becoming more frequent and more intense. So there was one off Tasmania a couple of years ago that lasted for 200 days. Wow. And that means wow. that the temperature is not in the 90th percentile. It's like way above what it's normally at that time of the year. And that obviously affects all the animals in the ocean. It affects the habitats like seagrass and kelp. So the bleaching that happens in the coral reefs, you can also get uh, seaweeds and seagrasses die off down in the, what's called the Great Temperate Reef, which runs around the south of Australia. So overall around Australia, about 40% of Australia's marine habitats have been affected by that. So they've died off either for a short while or are gone completely and we're not quite sure when they'll come back. And there's been about 100 species moved further south to try and find cooler waters through time. So it's having a pretty big footprint on Australia's marine ecosystem. And so when, when you're talking about those, you, you spoke about 100 species sort of essentially moving, That you, you sort of call that distribution of species, don't you? And I guess I'm, I'm curious yeah. about that because you then talk about how that affects the industries that are directly... Um, related to fishing, whether it's uh, fishing itself or, or uh, as you talk about, um, aquaculture in general. And so, so what's the knock-on effect that we see here? I mean, you spoke a little bit about um, in, the, in one of your articles about um, the lobster industry in Maine. Do we see some similar kinds of things happening in, in our neck of the woods? Yeah, so it has some direct effects, like literally fish move to a different location. So fishermen who used to be able to catch them can't find them anymore. So if you think about recreational fishermen, there's you know about one in five people in Australia are recreational fishermen. And so they're finding species in places that have never found them before, which is great if you're on the receiving end, but if you're on the losing end, it's not so much fun. And that's happening in the commercial fisheries as well with things like crabs and stuff moving further south. So they're shifting from, say, Queensland to New South Wales or from Victoria into Tasmania. And under current laws, that's a bit hard for the fishermen to follow them. So it affects the, the local fishermen who can't move with the species, but it's the easiest thing for most people, and that's what's happening in the Northern Hemisphere is the animals move, the people move with them. In uh, other kinds of things that it's affecting is how far offshore these animals are. So in some cases, uh, it's moving the small pelagics uh, that we think of as sardines and pilchards, not too many 
uh, Australians of my mother's age ate those kind of things, but they're a much more common thing that we eat these days. They're moving further offshore. Uh, and it's also affecting aquaculture. So the inshore is becoming too hot. So, for instance, they're having to move salmon farms or are looking to move salmon farms further offshore. Well, we, this might be a bit of a stupid question, so forgive me, but how? why do the fish move? Is it because of the heat? Is it, is it un, like, what is it about the changing of the ocean's temperature that makes the fish migrate differently? So there's lots of different aspects to climate change in the ocean. So temperature is the most obvious one, and it's literally they don't have air conditioning, so they have to no. move to the, what feels comfortable for them. Yeah. So they're moving to temperatures that they feel comfortable or mm. that their prey, what they eat, is moving and they're following right. that. So it's kind so of a knock-on effect. Mm. Yep. Yeah. And there's lots of other aspects. So there's less oxygen in the ocean. The ocean is becoming more acidified, so oh. it can eat shells and all that kind of stuff. Oh, my goodness. Uh, the currents are shifting, so the currents are going to different places to where they used to be in the past. The big current that goes down the east coast of Australia now comes much about 280 kilometres further south. Instead of stopping in Victoria, it comes all the way to Tasmania. So well, that's quite a that's quite a big change. Different. Yes, it is quite a big change. It wow. made the water temperature in Tasmania a lot warmer. Wow. Well, that's nice for the Tasmanians, I guess. So the turtles <laughs> that ride on the AEC in Finding Nemo wouldn't. Yeah, they could end up in Tasmania. Yeah. Too. Oh, so they Dory could... wouldn't have made it to Woolloomooloo or whatever it is. <laughs> it would have been a bit harder. Yeah. It's difficult. Um, I, I was struck by. Um, the link that you make to Iceland's exit from negotiations over its prospective European Union membership as a result of of um, climate related change in the oceans. So, do you think that the, it, we we can even see the effects of the warming of the oceans of 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 the change in the oceans on land? Yep. So, in that particular case, the the fish had moved out of the European waters up to Iceland. And so Iceland no longer had an incentive to negotiate to be a part of the EU. In fact, they wanted to keep the fish for themselves. It caused a bit of a trade war and tension, which then broke down negotiations. So there's actually a whole bunch all around the world, not just in the ocean, but going from the ocean to the land of how what's happening in the ocean is affecting the people. So, for instance, with sea level rise, there's islanders across the South Pacific that are buying land in Texas or buying other islands that are higher up in different countries because they're going to go underwater and that's affecting all and the, the species that are left behind they have to live with the new submerged islands so there's already islands lost to sea level rise and so it's affecting the ecosystems but it's also affecting the people and where they have to move and when you think about all of the island nations across the south pacific that's an awful lot of people that are actually facing that those issues within this generation they'll have to deal with those kind of issues mm. speaking of those um countries uh, those uh island nations countries of a more tropical climate are worse affected by warming oceans yet um, those populations rely heavily on food that are sourced from the ocean so what precautions are being put in place to support these communities so there's a few different things that are happening. Some of it is just rebuilding uh, habitats and the fish stocks that are there so they're in as healthy a state as possible, so they're as robust as possible and they can try and fight the stress. But ultimately, they're also just looking for other options. They're looking for to move themselves. Uh, they're looking for new ways of fishing. So some of the people that used to fish, refish really local to their island, they're now looking to fish for tuna and putting out 
devices to help them catch tuna and asking scientists to help make to make sure that's sustainable. They're looking to whole new opportunities, so whole new industries that are coming with our awareness of climate change, so selling carbon on international carbon markets and using money from that to fund local development and local livelihoods around protecting mangroves so they become stewards of the mangroves rather than exploiting things. Um, so it's about a whole bunch of different ways of helping people cope so that they've got new options because ultimately we're all going to face pressure and there's probably going to be less to go around trade-wise potentially as well. So you've got to find some local solutions to help. Is this, is it, because I, I read somewhere that you have um, worked with people around the idea of the blue economy. Is this sort of what we're tapping into here at the moment? Yes. So the blue economy is all of the industries that happen in the oceans, and there's an increasing number of those. And the oceans are going under really fast growth at the present moment. So if you can imagine everything that's happened on land in the last 10,000 years, from the invention of agriculture to the Industrial Revolution and the invention of cars and steam trains and everything that's happened since then. Now, telescope that into the ocean over the last couple of decades so that really taking off now. And that's what's happening. So that huge economy is moving to the oceans. It's doubling every decade. It's already the seventh largest economy on the planet if it treated as one country. And that's just growing really fast. So oil and gas, shipping, mining, aquaculture, mm. fisheries, even people building large floating islands to be home. So the Dutch have already made their first floating suburb. Wow. Oh, okay. They're always ahead of us, those Dutch. They really are, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> They know what they're doing. They really do. Um, Dr. Beth, we are asking the question, what happens if the world ends? If I could ask you, if you had a favourite, or if you had your choice of apocalypse... It's not really would... a favourite, is it? Yeah, it's not really a favourite. <laughs> favourite's the wrong word. Yeah. But if you could choose an apocalypse, what would you choose? An apocalypse? Mm. I don't know. I'd like to go at the Big Bang. So an asteroid strike would be pretty exciting. Yeah, cool. Yeah. We're the same. I chose asteroid too. And we were speaking earlier about, about how asteroids gave rise to other, other life forms and... Uh, we, that would just be providing a new opportunity for something else to flourish. Exactly. Yep. Reset. <laughs> well, Dr. Beth Fulton, um, the head of research at the uh, Inter Ecosystem Modelling and Risk Assessment at the CSIRO, thank you so much for joining us on What Happens If. Thank you.